Hi everyone, this is Tom Miller, editor of Solar Review. Today we're getting responses on the latest trade case decisions from industry analyst Paula Mintz and our own CEO, Boaz Soifer. I want to take a quick second to tell you about the official launch of our other Solar Review podcast. It's called The Look Back, and it's hosted by myself and solar consultant Pam Cargill. Each week, we invite a solar contractor to come on and discuss how they approach certain challenges when they were first starting out in the business and how they deal with those challenges now. So it's kind of a story podcast, but also an opportunity to find out what these contractors have learned over the years. We've recorded two other unofficial look back episodes already with Barry Cinnamon and Jim Yennell from Run on Sun, but the first official episode will come out next week, so keep an eye out for that. As usual, please subscribe to Solar Review and leave us a rating on iTunes and check out our online magazine. Just Google Solar Review, that's review spelled R period E period view, all one word, Solar Review. We have a lot of great articles, videos, and podcasts with industry leaders on how to run efficient and healthy solar contracting businesses. So that's all for now. And without further ado, here's industry analyst Paula Mintz on the latest trade case outcomes. Thanks for taking the time today. Well, thanks for asking. I appreciate it. So should we jump right in? Just jump. Go ahead. All right. So what is your take on the commissioner's recommendations? Well, there are three sets of recommendations. And I think as I covered in the solar flare, they range from low impact to impactful. So first, I will, to just to digress a tad, I would say mm-hmm. the worst thing that's happened, the worst outcome here is that our industry is now vulnerable to the Trump administration and whatever they choose to do. Right. <laughs> and that is actually the worst thing. You know, okay. So we're now opened up in a situation where whatever these recommendations are, uh, the Trump administration could take them up, choose, could combine, could make them worse mm-hmm. by saying, no, this is not what we want. Let's do even more. So we're vulnerable to and it's out of our control right now. SIA is focused on lobbying. I'm sure they are our lobbying organization in the U.S., but we're really vulnerable to an administration that favors coal and doesn't hold solar and wind in high esteem. That is the worst outcome here. The other outcome that's worse than any of these recommendations is simply the uncertainty because you don't know. Here are the recommendations. Yes, we know it was recommended. Different things were recommended. What will be the outcome? We don't know. That means there's uncertainty in the market. Indeed, and just in the range of hasn't been mentioned but possible possibilities, the administration could make whatever they decide retroactive to November 1. They may not do that, but they may. That means manufacturers shipping into the U.S. have to think very carefully. That means buyers in the U.S. have to think very carefully. On the face of it, reading this, the people that will be most impacted are the small to medium installers of solar products. So I think you can make an argument for any of these recommendations that the uh, larger utility scale guys who are buying in quantity will, the tariff could be absorbed. Tariff is built on top of, if the tariff is built on, there's no minimum price here. So tariff built up off on top of whatever the import price is, you just lower the import price. That's what happened before. <laughs> so yeah. the bigger guys don't see an effect. Mm-hmm. In you know it, it, in Europe, there's a minimum price. All you do is you lower the minimum price. There are ways to work around these things. 
I think, and I've written about this again and again and again, when governments reach in and tinker in this way, these ways without a full understanding of how the market has been operating, it's almost impossible to get it right. So it's a huge job. Right. So that would be a very long-winded preamble to say. <laughs> First of all, there are, for all of these uh, recommendations, there are countries that are not impacted. Most of these countries aren't actually developing anything or manufacturing anything, so that's a little bit amusing. Thin mm. um, film manufacturers aren't impacted, so that's for solar, solar frontier. The tariff recommendations for all three, and we're just starting with the chairmans here, but all three are not significant enough to actually benefit solar frontier or for solar so there's a maybe a little benefit there to them personally but not that much rec is a crystalline manufacturer they stand to, and they're in singapore they're not they haven't been impacted they're one of their major market is indeed the us so they're already putting in equipment orders because <laughs> no matter what happens actually i have to say Nothing could still happen. That is still a, something that could happen. Nothing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, basically, manufacturers from the impacted regions could simply potentially choose to ship through the markets that are not impacted and avoid the tariff at least for a while. And by the way, that happened before. Yeah. So. The tariff on cells is negligible. It'll be absorbed by larger producers, smaller guys. The tariff on modules is too high to be blank absorbed, but likely will be absorbed for larger quantity or multi-megawatt level buyers. And always, it's the small guy that gets hurt, including the smaller module assemblers. Mm -hmm. So the vice chair and Commissioner Williamson, my commentary is essentially that the import, impact on cell imports is negligible as the U.S. is only slightly over one gigawatt of module assembly capacity. So, you know, it's not going to, you know, there's seriously, it's not going to be as it stands, not going to be enough imported to actually hit that. The higher tariff from modules is unlikely to be absorbed, even for larger buyers. And again, there's the option to ship through the other countries. I'm not, you know, again, we don't know what's going to be, what's going to happen here in right. terms of what is chosen. And finally, Commissioner Broadbent, in reading her full statement, which was the fullest, the report hasn't come out yet. Hers was the most expansive in terms of her opinion, shows, in my opinion, both, both a vast misunderstanding of the U.S. solar market for PV products and uh, actually some th sympathy to it and not wanting to do it some har so harm. And you actually can't have it both ways. So... She is, has recommended something that most people think won't be very impactful. One cent uh, tariff set by auction on the face is not impactful and or not very impactful and also quite candidly, uh, maybe not even workable. It doesn't actually make a lot of logical sense. That would be the lowest potential of being adopted, in my opinion. She excludes the same countries, meaning there's the same ability to work around. She singles out Mexico, which affects sun power, and that's not good. And what does it mean? Yeah. It means the uncertainty of sitting around and waiting while CEO lobbies and hopefully successfully and to see what happens. And uh, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross has basically said that he wants to wait on steel until after tax reform. So he could choose to wait on this until mm -hmm. after, after tax reform. Mm -hmm. You have, you know, the... Um, 
U.S. trade representative who has both advocating, advocated for increasing tariffs and also advocated against tariffs on the part of Japan against U.S. beef. So, you know, you can't have it both ways there, dude. Seriously. Right. Mm-hmm. Trump favors tariff tariffs. He also favors coal. So he might decide to really make an example of us. Again, the worst thing is the uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And that's my opinion. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what should those small to medium installers be thinking about now in terms of their businesses? Well, you know, there's going to be a lot of opinion on this written again and again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Um Unfortunately, nobody really can say. Offering an opinion on something that no one knows the actual what will when nobody knows what will actually happen is actually, I think, doing a disservice to the small and medium installers who listen to all of these differing opinions and either panic or decide what am I going to do? You know, just throw mm-hmm. up their hands. These are small business people. Mm-hmm. Here is what they need to do: is sort of traverse through the valley of uncertainty, which is the worst thing that can happen to either humans individually or people trying to operate in a market. So you're traversing through the valley of uncertainty. The best advice any analyst should give any of their clients is to at least take a look at what the worst case could be and prepare for it. So the worst case would be the highest degree of tariffs as published. And I I believe you guys have a newsletter. You're welcome to publish what I wrote in it on this, um, which I don't usually do, but I I really do think people need to stay the course of understanding that the worst thing right now is the uncertainty. We just don't know what President Trump will do. We don't know what the recommendations will be. We don't know if even if he'll do anything, that is still an option. We don't know if he'll pick any recommendation up. So as the best advice any analyst can give, and this is the advice I typically give my clients, is to plan for the best and the worst. You have to make your mind to go to the worst case and have a strategy set in place to deal with it. Okay. Well, thank you, Paula. This has been Paula Mintz with SPV Market Research, and we'll be sharing her latest issue of the Solar Flare in Solar Review. Thank you for that, Paula, and thank you for taking the time today. Great. Thank you, Tom, for asking me to uh, comment. Hey, Boaz, how's it going? I had trouble sleeping and I ate too much Halloween candy. <laughs> Rookie mistake. <laughs> and uh, it's not even good. Candy corn? <laughs> like the, no, the best thing in there is like Reese's peanut butter cups. Oh. It's all downhill from there. Yeah. So I ate like a mini Almond Joy. Almond no, Joy is coconut, right? Coconut and there's like an almond staple to it. Hiding <laughs> 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 under the chocolate. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get down to business. Uh, trade case. What's your take? So there are still a lot of unknowns. You know, the, the one thing that was nice to see about the recommendations is that none of them were as aggressive as what the petitioners requested. And that's a good sign. It doesn't eliminate the possibility that President Trump will um, act independently of the recommendations and still impose heavier tariffs. But it does sort of set a precedent and, and give the president some recommendations and guidelines that hopefully he's more likely to go with now that, that they exist. Right. And then, you know, looking at the tariff recommendations themselves, the one thing we're grappling with, and, I, and I've been asking everybody who, who will take my call about this, is what is the cost basis from which the tariff will be calculated? If it's the, the price on a certain date, 
like October 31st, the date the recommendations were made, then, you know, Chinese module prices are, let's say, in the in the mid to high 50s in cents per watt. Adding 30% to that is substantial. Mm-hmm. If the 30% is added to the cost basis, the manufacturing cost, plus transportation and channel costs for the manufacturers, then 30% could be added more to a number like 30 cents or 30-something cents, um, in which case it would be absorbed into today's price. So for residential and small commercial contractors, um, that I think is going to be a, a really important distinction to try to get some clarification about. And I don't know when we're going to get that. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the, the most important takeaway is, you know, th- this gives us some directional guidance maybe, but it doesn't give us anything as an industry that's concrete enough to make decisions from. And that's, that means we're, we're, you know, we're kind of walking into this blindfolded as an industry and not knowing what the ramifications are going to be. Mm-hmm. Right. Paula Mintz mentioned that the worst thing about this right now is that it's just uncertain. There's uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah. And I heard her also mention that the worst thing about this is that it puts the fate or at least the short term fate of our industry in the hands of one individual and his um, agenda or, or his priorities aren't clearly aligned with renewable energy. They're, they align in terms of job creation, but domestic manufacturing is, is not an area of alignment. And certainly this administration's emphasis on coal and natural gas and de-emphasis on the EPA, you know, environmental protections and climate science and things like that. You know, none of those give the industry a lot of confidence, I think, that priorities are aligned. So what about quotas? Will quotas cause a module shortage in the U.S.? And how will that impact the market? Yeah, that's also an important question that we can't really answer, but we can take some guesses at. Mm. So some of the commissioners recommended a quota of 8.9 gigawatts. And it's expected that the market this year in the U.S. is going to be between 11 and 12 gigawatts. Mm -hmm. So the general consensus so far is that the 8.9 gigawatts is not expected to significantly constrain the market. If If it were to constrain the market and we had a shortage, then we would expect to see prices go up. And we would also expect to see just some contractors starving for equipment. Mm. Um, or some balancing, right? Because as prices go up, less consumers will buy and that might cause contractors to starve for jobs. So on one side of that equation or the other, a quota could be a problem. Um, but but the numbers that are being floated right now are not causing a lot of alarm, at least with the, the people that I've been asking. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that one's okay. Right. So recommendations for our contractor partners now, question mark, hold fast. What do you think? Yeah, be careful. I mean, I think the most important thing for contractors to watch is the value of their existing backlog. And like the article that I wrote last month, right. and I think we did a podcast on it also, you know, the, the risk that's in that backlog of having to install systems at a certain you know, based on a certain cost of materials and having the cost of materials go up could cause those 
jobs to be unprofitable. And if a contractor doesn't have the, the cash to survive that, that could put a real crimp on the business. So I encourage contractors to be putting language in their contracts that allow them to either exit the contract or raise the price. And I also recommend having transparency between the contractor and the end user so that as much of that is known for as much of the process as possible. With their customers. Um, I I think that's important. Yeah, Yeah, with their customers. Um, I wouldn't recommend contractors buy too much equipment in advance and tie up a lot of cash. I mean, I I think some of that's happening, but but there's risk in that. Um, So, you know, buying a couple of weeks extra or a month extra maybe, but trying to buy three months or six months of inventory is not something that the, the market in general should be doing. Um, and there's probably not product available at this point for people to do that anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the message is sit tight for a couple more weeks. Around November 13th, we're going to have the next round of feedback on this topic. And that'll also be at the conclusion of President Trump's trip to Asia, where I know trade is going to be a topic with China. It might also be a topic with South Korea. Mm. Uh, so stay tuned. I think in a couple of weeks, we should know more. You want to talk a little bit about books, articles, what you're reading? I'm mostly listening to Reggie Watts videos on YouTube. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure how much wisdom there is to share from those. You, you would uh, turn me on to these Mark's diving little short articles about pricing. And yeah. I read one today called Do We Win or Lose Based on Price? And I'm wondering if we can take this moment to think about all customers are making choices based on price. But are there situations when price is less of a factor? And, and one that I'm thinking of is, is maybe referrals that a contractor might get. You know, they, those customers that get a referral might be less price sensitive at that point. Can you think of other ways that... So... What, what were you going to say there? I think it's a good premise to recognize that we never win or lose based on price. And all of us have sales experiences or... Our sales teams have experiences where where they come back from what feels like a price war and say they won the price war or they lost the price war. Mm -hmm. I guess either way is a losing proposition. What I think is important to recognize about that column, which I also read and I, I liked it, is that what we're really winning or losing on is a demonstration of whether our price has a certain value attached to it. And kind of the standard way to think about that is, are we solving a problem? And is the value of what we're offering commensurate with the pain of the problem that we're solving? Right. So another way to reframe your price is too high is the value you're delivering is too low. Mm-hmm. And I think it behooves any anyone in sales or anyone in pricing which is in itself a discipline, to make really clear decisions and learn how to communicate really clearly about what the value is that's associated with the delivered price Mm -hmm. and what is the pain that's being alleviated. And it's really important for that to be also where differentiation takes place. Mm. So we can match their price has no additional value in it, whereas... We can offer this set of services. You can rely on us to be responsive. You can 
rely on us to be here for the long term because we have been. You know, those kinds of statements that might differentiate. Mm. And, and those are really generic examples, but mm. the more specifically you can differentiate, the better. Mm. Um, and that should go with the price. Mm. Right? Um, See, uh, and, in that article, I was separating price and value. So you could have a high price, but if you dial up the value, then you could make customers less sensitive to price, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that price and value are multipliers in one equation, but the way that you're separating them um, is another very valid way to look at it. I I associate that more with brand at that point. Mm. Um, There's definitely less price sensitivity around the products offered by companies who have successfully developed brands that communicate something compelling. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you can do that without brand too, I guess is your point. Um, And that's true. But but really at the end of the day, the price still matters. Even at higher levels of value, there might be less sensitivity to price, but only in the extremes of economic propositions like the new, what is it, Hennessy? There's a new car that mm. I saw the press release today. 1,600 horsepower, $1.6 million, um, and it's targeting 300 miles an hour, the fastest road car. But there is a price. It's $1.6 million. Right. Right? I, I don't know if it would sell for $3 million or $10 million or, or if just as many would sell for more. But, but there is this package of price and value that that still has to have some equation to it. And some of the value can be intangible, and I, and I get that. And that can reduce the sensitivity because it's hard to value the intangible parts of value. But that doesn't mean they're not in there. I want to switch gears real quick and talk about a survey that we released on Solar Review. Um, we asked readers uh, in 2017, are you going to grow your business or protect margins? And about 50% said grow business and the other 50% said protect margins. Does does that surprise you at all? It does. Um, but when I think about it, I think there are, th- there's a little bit of a false dichotomy there. Hmm. Um, because, because if the options were grow the business or grow margins, right. then that might have yielded different results. Or if it was reduce risk in the business, right, as opposed to protect margins, that has a different flavor to it also. I think kind of herding respondents into the two options probably doesn't give us a, a real accurate assessment of how the industry's feeling. Sure. I think the industry is pretty bearish um, right now. I mean, they're, they're, I would say 10% of the contractors I talk to are feeling aggressive and they're outgrowing the market and they're winning in all kinds of ways that the other 90% aren't. Mm-hmm. And especially in more mature markets like California, and we're seeing this in New York and Massachusetts also, contractors are seeing a, a slower uh, rate of market growth. And for for them to think they're going to continue to indefinitely outpace the market growth rate probably doesn't feel realistic, right? It drives up customer acquisition costs. It increases complexity of the business. How about let's just grow at the rate of the market and work on making our business more efficient? And that's not quite a, a protect margins statement, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's like what we're talking about 
in terms of having a playbook and, and growing up our processes, right? Mm-hmm. We, we know what we're good at. Let's get great at it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's not a growth statement or, or a protective statement. It's a we're getting clearer about this and maturing Got statement. It. So, you know, I would have expected more people to respond, protect margins, but it's also possible they misunderstood. Yeah. Um, or they reacted neg- yeah. negatively to the protect margins question and exactly. they went with growing exactly. business. Yeah. yeah. You have another idea for a survey. What is it? I want to know what uh, key performance indicators contractors are using to get a pulse of mm. how healthy their business is. And okay. um, I, I love asking this question because, you know, especially contractors that, that have been at it for 10, 15, 20 years or more, they really have it dialed in to here's the one thing I watch. And, it, and if it's good, I know we're good. It's rare, it's rare that there's just one answer to that. The young companies that have like 20, 30 key performance indicators and they, and they think right. um, they're very sophisticated, right? And we've been there, we've been there. But the more you tune your business, the more you realize there are really few drivers of your success. Hmm. Um, for many solar businesses, for example, I think megawatts per headcount mm-hmm. or kilowatts per headcount that's a, a really important one because the efficiency of the business matters. Uh, another one for contractors is labor utilization, mm-hmm. right? Of the number of billable hours in a given week, how many of them are actually spent on a job site? Mm-hmm. And those are pretty easy things to measure too. And that matters because if if you invent KPIs that you struggle to monitor, yeah. they're not going to be actionable uh, quickly for you. So I'm really interested to hear what different contractors are coming up with as they get more and more comfortable with their businesses. And I think we're at that stage in in the industry where we're going to get a lot of great answers to that question that might make our whole network smarter if we can share them. Got it. Great. Well, we, you know, we'll work on compiling that survey and get it out to readers. Um, that's all awesome. my questions. Thanks for taking the time today, Boaz. Thank you, Tom. And we're clear. All right. Thank you for listening to the Solar Review Podcast. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes and subscribe and check out our online magazine. Just Google Solar Review. That's review spelled R period E period view, all one word, Solar Review. We have a lot of great articles, videos, and podcasts with industry leaders on how to run efficient and healthy solar contracting businesses. So check us out. Thanks for listening and see you next time.